This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Joining us today is Dr. Dennis Johnson, professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California, where he's taught since 1982. He's been a solo pastor in two congregations and has served a congregation here in Escondido for many years. He's also a student of the Book of Hebrews, which he taught as a New Testament scholar here for many years, and on which he did his doctoral research. He's co-author of Counsel from the Cross, editor of the volume Heralds of the King, and author of Him We Proclaim and Commentaries on Acts and the Revelation. All these and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you very much, Scott. Quick recap for the listener who has not listened to every episode in Season 4 of Office Hours. How that could happen, I have no idea or why, but just in case someone's dropping in the middle of the series, we're looking at the book of Hebrews— written in the mid-60s to a predominantly Jewish congregation where we're not sure, possibly Italy, possibly somewhere else, and they're being tempted to go back to the Old Covenant and to adopt perhaps Pharisaical, rabbinical Jewish obligations and to turn their back on Jesus, to go back to a socially acceptable religion in the first century that was a legal religion as opposed to, by now, uh, Christianity, which is becoming an increasingly marginalized religion in the first century. Jewish nationalism is growing, and there is coming a violent, bloody invasion by Roman troops of Jerusalem and Palestine, and the temple is to be destroyed a few years after the writing and first hearing of this epistle. Did I get that about right? I think you got that right on. All right. And so here we find ourselves in chapter 2 as the pastor, and there's something else we wanted to look at in chapter 1 just a bit, if memory serves. And the pastor to the Hebrews is beginning to make a case to these Christians why they should not turn their back on Jesus and why they should stick with him because he's better, he's really better than everything else to which they're being tempted. Exactly. Yes, we we looked in the last uh, conversation at the series of Old Testament quotations, seven quotations from the Old Testament, emphasizing the superiority of the Son to the angels. And I suggested that I think the main reason for that contrast is because at the beginning of what we now call chapter 2, the preacher to the Hebrews in, in this sermon is going to make the application to say it was very vitally important to hear and adhere to the law given to Moses by the Lord on Mount Sinai in the company of many angels. But if that's so, how much more important is it to listen to the word of salvation that God has now spoken to us in his Son? This is actually one of the first at the beginning of chapter 2, one of the first of these how much more light to heavy arguments that we know from Jewish exegesis and theological reasoning elsewhere, but that we find in the book of Hebrews. And it's striking that his argument here is from lesser judgment for having disregarded God's law to greater judgment for having disregarded or failing to adhere to the word of salvation. His argument overall in the book of Hebrews is lesser blessing leading to greater blessing through Christ. But here, as well as in chapter 10, when he comes back to the same theme, he says that there are dire consequences if we disregard the wonderful gift that God has now accomplished in the coming of his son and his sacrifice and his exaltation and that's now offered to us in the gospel. 
The writer to the Hebrews is not calling them to ignore the Old Covenant and to think that it's insignificant. He's really saying, no, if you pay attention to the Old Covenant, you'll understand what I'm saying. That's absolutely true. In fact, one of the things that I find striking about the preacher to the Hebrews is that the way he introduces Old Testament quotations, and it will begin now and continue on through most of the epistle, is instead of using a verb of writing that refers to a past act, it is written, the Greek gagroptai, the way we were familiar with in Paul's writings or Matthew, he introduces Old Testament texts with verbs of speaking in the present. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us in the words of those ancient scriptures to us today. Of course, in chapters 3 and 4, that word today, drawn from Psalm 95, becomes very, very important. Today, the Spirit is speaking to us, saying, don't harden your heart. And so he's very conscious of the fact that the ancient scriptures spoken to the fathers through the prophets, what we call the Old Testament, addresses us directly today. He begins chapter 2 with a therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? We've, We've touched on that. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, as you were just saying, lest we drift away from it. Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What is the jeopardy faced by this congregation? Well, the danger is that this congregation, having been led by God's direction in the history of redemption to this point where Christ has offered the complete, once-for-all, conscience-cleansing sacrifice, that they would in any way seek their comfort, their hope, their assurance in those older institutions that God had designed only as shadows to lead us to this point. And so what he's really saying, in effect, is neglecting the word of salvation, which perhaps in their mind, adopting, going back into the whole system surrounding the sanctuary in Jerusalem, its sacrifices, the priests descended from Aaron, might have appeared to them to be just going back to being faithful to the God of their fathers. He's saying, in effect, no, you go back now. Now that God has brought the history of redemption to this point, and they have fulfilled their function of forecasting and foreshadowing Christ, now that he's come, to go back now is really to abandon the God who speaks to you. It's not to go back to him, it's to go away from him. What's the danger of abandoning Jesus and of going backwards in the history of redemption? And what happens if they do that? Well, if they fundamentally and completely do that, it's a demonstration that they are really not living by a persevering and genuine faith and its ultimate destruction. Chapter 6, he talks about the privileges that they now experience as members of the New Covenant community, the Holy Spirit in their midst and these other things. And if they go back away from that, they are in effect pronouncing judgment on Jesus on the cross. They're in effect by their actions, by their abandonment of the faith, saying Jesus deserved to die for his own sins and trampling him underfoot. And that is eternal ruin. From Westminster Seminary, California. There's real jeopardy in trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant. And in terms of of chapter 6, tasting of the powers of the age to come, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but so that the writer to the Hebrews wants these hearers to know that they face real jeopardy before God should they turn back. So this isn't just sociology. This is religion, if you will, in the strictest, narrowest sense. Exactly. This isn't just about boundary markers. No, no. This is about their relationship to the living God. 
We've used the expression several times in these episodes, Old Covenant. Can you define what you mean by that and what you think the writer to the Hebrews means when he thinks of and uses the expression Old Covenant? Well, by implication, he's referring specifically to the covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai through Moses, because he's in chapter 12 and again in chapter 10, in a briefer form, he's going to quote from the great new covenant promise from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And that new covenant is directly contrasted to the covenant made with Israel at Sinai. And of course, as he's thinking of it in this book, he's thinking particularly about the means of atonement, the means of cleansing for violation of God's law, uh, the sanctuary at sacrifice sacrifices, its Aaronic priesthood descended from Aaron. For the purposes of this preacher to the Hebrews, this is at the very center of the Old Covenant. How do we have access to God, which is what we're called to as people made in his image? How, how do we have access? Not through the old, but now through the new way, the living way that Jesus has opened through his sacrifice on the cross. As Hebrews thinks about it in the narrow sense, not everything that happened prior to the incarnation of Jesus belongs strictly in the Old Covenant. I think it's significant or important enough to sort of reemphasize that because we tend to use in popular colloquial usage the phrase Old Testament or Old Covenant to mean everything that happened before the incarnation of Jesus. That's true. And he's using it in a fairly technical sense here. Yes, he really is. If right. we don't catch that, we could miss some of what he's up to. Right. Well, for example, we hear in chapter 6, his referring to Abraham living by faith in things promised that he did not fully receive. And of course, in chapter 11, again, living by faith, we read about that in the books that we call the Old Testament. But in a certain sense, God's dealing with Abraham and calling him to trust in faith in the history of redemption comes before the covenant established at Sinai. And that's in part why Abraham is appealed to as uh, as this prototype of one who lives by faith in the promises of God. So we could say by way of slogan, just to simplify things, that in Hebrews, Abraham is not Moses. They're different figures. They have different functions in the history of redemption. There is a temptation sometimes in contemporary Christianity, and maybe it's always been there, to sort of conflate the two and treat them as if they were essentially the same figures, and they're not really, because there are things said of Moses that just aren't said about Abraham. And we bear a relationship to him, for example, in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3 and Galatians 4 that we don't bear to Moses. And Abraham has a kind of permanence, in a sense, in the history of redemption, considered as a progressive revelation that Moses, as important as he was and is, doesn't have. I think that's true. As we're talking about Moses as the one through whom God gives this law to Israel and ordains this way of access. Now, we also want to nuance that a bit by remembering that Moses stands with us in the line of faith that yeah. comes through Abraham. And so he's included among those who are listed as people of faith in Hebrews 11. We're not denying that by any means. Yeah, he's a believer. Absolutely. A, and and yeah, Hebrews absolutely. treats him as a Christian, as it were, before time, looking forward to Jesus, trusting, hoping, looking forward. So, yeah, we're not relegating him outside the people, right. but just distinguishing a little bit between Moses and Abraham. I, I know when that notion was first put to me many, many years ago, it was a little bit shocking. So it might be good to introduce that to the listener early on. Now, chapter 2, verse 4 while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. To what does that have reference? Does that go back to many places, many times, or is he thinking of something else? 
Well, if we pick up at the end of chapter 2, verse 3, we hear that the word of salvation that is now spoken to us had its beginning when it was spoken through the Lord, and then it was confirmed to us by those who heard, that is, those who heard the Lord. And this is really the preacher to the Hebrews' way of speaking of the apostles, those whom Jesus commissioned to be his unique and inspired spokesman, and of course, as we know from Acts and other places, as particularly the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. But here, because Hebrews is so focusing on hearing, hearing the word, the apostles' role as those who heard the Lord and now speak to us is what's preeminent right here. And then, of course, it's because the apostles' ministry and the apostles' witness was accompanied by the attesting miraculous signs that he's emphasizing that point, that God alongside the apostles, God bore his own witness that they were indeed speaking the very word of the risen Christ. And so he's referencing what we read about in the book of Acts, for example, where the apostolic preaching was accompanied by signs and wonders, even as Jesus' earthly ministry of word was also accompanied by and attested by the signs and the miracles that he accomplished. He's foreshadowing some of his argument about the superiority of the new covenant that he's going to come to. Okay, 2, 5 and following. Now, it's not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. So then that touches on something we've already discussed in an earlier episode. So the listener may want to go back and listen to those earlier discussions of Hebrews. It has been testified somewhere, as if he doesn't know and we couldn't find out, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. What's he quoting and what does it mean? Well, he's quoting from Psalm 8, and uh, though he does refer to it in that generic somewhere, he knows exactly where he's quoting from, and he expects his hearers to know the text that he's quoting from. The, The point is, at this point, the human author is really not significant. The human author of that psalm is not significant to the point that he's going to make, and so he doesn't need to bring that in. At a later point, he will point out that Psalm 95 is spoken in and through David, because that placement in redemptive history makes a lot of difference in how you understand Psalm 95 and its application. But here, not the main point. This psalm, in the way he introduces it, is about the world to come. Chapter 2, verse 5, not to angels did he subject the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. My hunch is, since he's saying we're already talking about this, my hunch is he's at least referring back to chapter 1, verse 14. The angels are sent as ministering spirits to minister to us, who are now in Christ a new humanity that have a place of honor and glory. But he's viewing this psalm, Psalm 8, not as a look back to the beginning of history, primarily, to the idyllic situation in Eden before the fall, nor is he simply saying, well, in principle, in theory, humanity still has a kind of a preeminence among the creation, even, you know, sort of ignoring the effects of the fall. He's really viewing this text as a text that looks forward to the world to come and anticipates that God's purpose to make humanity, those who bear his image and who live under his lordship in joyful submission and obedience to make them the preeminent rulers of the created order. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul. 
for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. What can we learn about the way the pastor to the Hebrews makes use of Psalm 8? How does that help us think about how to interpret Scripture and the method we use to interpret Scripture? Well, one of the things we see in the way he treats Psalm 8 is that he pays careful attention to individual words and how they relate to one another, in that he references the theme of submission in his commentary in verses 8 and following. He mentions in verse 9 the fulfillment of this theme that humanity is made for a little while lower than the angels, which I think is probably part of his rationale for invoking this psalm at this point. And so he's paying careful attention to the words. He's not just ignoring them or glossing over them. But the other thing is that he's looking at Psalm 8 in a very wide set of horizons, a very wide set of contexts. And in this text in particular, he's referencing this whole theme of what humanity, what the human race is created to be. Ultimately, he's viewing Psalm 8 in the trajectory of God's purpose for the whole of history, and especially for us as the people made in his image. And he's saying we're not there yet. We're not where this psalm says humanity is. We might be surprised, as the psalmist was a bit surprised, that this is our destiny. What is man? We're so little. But it is our destiny, and yet we're not there yet. Not everything is in submission to us yet. So he's he's pointing out a little bit the tension built into the psalm. It's describing a state of affairs that is not part of our present experience, certainly was not part of ancient Israel's experience in its fullness, and therefore it's calling us ahead to something better. Of course, the other thing that he then does is to say that something better can only come to us in Christ. And so at verse 9, after he's pointed out that As we look at human experience now, we're not there yet. Not all things are in subjection. Then he says, but we do see the beginning of it. We do see one. And it's interesting. He does this several times. He introduces Jesus by way of a description and then finally gives us the name. So in the order of the Greek, our English versions may or may not reflect it. But in the order of the Greek, it's verse 9. The one who for a little while was made lower than the angels, we see and then the name Jesus. So he's intentionally describing Jesus in the language of the psalm. And we see Jesus then crowned with glory and honor. We've seen him in his humiliation, sharing our humanity, and therefore in that in that sense made a little lower than the angels in terms of their more immediate access to God than we have now. But then we see in Jesus the beginning of the trajectory up as he's crowned with glory and honor, so also his exaltation carries with it and implies our exaltation in union with him by his grace. The natural way of thinking about glory is one thing. How does the writer to the Hebrews, the pastor, preacher to the Hebrews, think about glory, and how does he connect it with death in the second half of verse 8 and verses 9 and following? 
he views the death of Christ as as really the pathway to his glory, but also as a display of his glory. As he says toward the end of verse 9, that it is through the suffering of death that Christ has been crowned with glory and honor in order that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. And in this, I think the preacher to the Hebrews is uh, is striking a chord that we find elsewhere in the New Testament. In the Gospel according to John, Jesus uh, more than once identifies his being lifted up as, on the one hand, his being lifted up on the cross, but ultimately it's his being lifted up in the ascension and into glory. But the cross is the beginning of his glory. And, of course, you have Paul showing the paradox that it's in the weakness of the cross that God displays his greatest strength as well. So what we, in our natural perceptions, would never view as anything to be associated with glory, but rather with shame and contempt and terrible suffering. The gospel says, to our great surprise, it is the display of the glory of God, and it is the display of the power of God for our rescue and for the honor of the triune God who's planned this way to bring us into his family and to make us his joyful worshipers. Sometimes people talk about Jesus' reign as if it were entirely future. When Jesus reigns or when he's sovereign or when he's in control, to pick up on the word you just used, the paradox is the suffering Savior who was crucified, dead, buried, raised on the third day, ascended days after that, he is now reigning. And he achieved that royal power, and he is exercising his reign, and he achieved it through death. And yet he is reigning. It might have been hard for the Hebrew congregation, these Jewish Christians, to wrap their mind around that and, and stay wrapped around that. And it might also be hard for us to wrap our mind around that truth, that even though things are perhaps not going the way we think they should or the way we think they would go, even though things may not be going the way we think they would go were Jesus ruling, in fact, Hebrews says he is ruling and things are going the way they are under his good providence. That's absolutely true. And as we saw at the end of chapter one, that's uh, an implication of the fulfillment already of Psalm 110, verse one. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and now his enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. Now, through the invincible power of the gospel, calling God's own into faith. Eventually, obviously, at his return, we'll also see the revelation of his power and his reign in his justice and in his judgment. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Why does the pastor to the Hebrews say it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should perfect through suffering the founder of their salvation? Why is it fitting? Well, it was fitting from at least two perspectives. As he will go on to say in verse 11, it's crucial that the one who sanctifies, who that consecrates and makes us holy, makes us acceptable to come to God, and we who are being sanctified be from one family, or we might even render that Greek from one father. That is, it's fitting that we have a Redeemer who is, as the writer will go on to say later on, our brother who shares our human nature. And that's, as he will go on to talk about the importance of Christ taking up our flesh and blood, verses 14 and following, for the sake of our redemption. And later on, building on the case that just as Aaron and his sons could be priests because they were from the people of Israel, they were their brothers. That's part of the fittingness. But the other thing was that uh, the requirement of our being sanctified, that is, consecrated, set apart, 
uh, given access to the presence of God, is that our sin must be dealt with. And so it's fitting from the standpoint that God, who is just, was going to provide a sin bearer who would really be one of us, and yet also utterly innocent, utterly pure. Yeah, he's the sanctifier for he who sanctifies, verse 11, and those who are sanctified, as you already suggested, all have one origin. And that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And then he quotes Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children, God has given me. Again, why the citation of Psalm 22? What's the implication for them and for us? And then uh, we'll come back and finish with this uh, verse, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Again, as the preacher to the Hebrews knows, a priest to represent the people before God needs to be really part of that people. He needs to be able to sympathize, to empathize with them in their struggles. He's standing on their behalf in the presence of the Holy God. And so, his, as we will go on to see in, in further conversations through Hebrews, really important that our priest be our brother. At the same time, really important that he not be like Aaron and his sons, who were, uh, to be sure, Israel's brothers, but they needed atonement for their own sin. We need a priest who is utterly sinless, without any flaw whatsoever. And so we need that kind of family solidarity in humanity. Hence the Son, the eternal Son of God, the radiance of his glory, becomes our human brother, not ashamed to call us brothers. I think the preacher to the Hebrews is aware that's that's a little surprising. When you think of who Jesus is, when you think of who we are, we would expect a twinge of regret that he has to acknowledge us, but he's not ashamed to call us brothers in his mercy and in his grace. And so there's that emphasis on his coming, becoming one of us for the sake of offering the obedience, but especially in Hebrews, offering the sacrifice that we need to cleanse us from our sin and to present us before God's presence. And then there is a quotation from, it looks like Isaiah 8. That's right. Actually, there are two little pieces that the author separates with and again, but they're really continuous, in which in the Old Testament, the prophet is speaking of himself and his children as a testimony and as a sign to Israel. But the prophet is always a bit of a preview of the ultimate spokesman of God as Really, Hebrews implied in the first couple of verses of the whole sermon, God spoke in prophets, now he's spoken in the Son. But ultimately, Isaiah then is a kind of a preview of Christ who counts us as his children. Again, that family connection is what is emphasized. And then he, of course, will go on in verse 14 to say, because the children have flesh and blood, he's going to partake of the very same humanity, the very same human nature, components of human nature. Why is it so important for the congregation to whom he's writing and preaching to understand about the people who've been given to the Son by the Father? Why does he want them to think of themselves that way? That is a great question. Let me ponder that for a second. These are people who are being tempted, right, to leave, to turn their backs on the Savior. And as we close this section, one of the things with which he wants to leave them, in a sense, is. If you have put your trust in Jesus, if you're confessing Christ, you're among that company, those people of whom Isaiah spoke and of whom the psalmist speaks in various places, who've been given to the royal, conquering, high priestly son. I think one way we could look at that 
question of why is it so important for those folks then, especially under the pressure of persecution, perhaps, or exclusion, social ostracism, and for us, too, to really take to heart the reality that we are family to Jesus, that he counts us as his brothers, is that I think when we become conscious of our sin and failure and realize how much we need forgiveness and a redeemer and the distance between us and God, our temptation is perhaps to think that Jesus is so remote, he's so different from us. And from the standpoint of his purity and his innocence, he is. But now, especially because we can't see him, like the Hebrew Christians in the first century by this point could not see him, and they even heard the gospel through others, so presumably few, if any of them, had been in Palestine when Jesus was ministering. They can't see him. They need to be, we need to be assured that the priest who stands at the Father's right hand and prays for us really knows our struggles, really has entered into our trials, has been, as Hebrews will go on to say in chapter 4, has been tested at every point as we are, and yet was without sin. We need a priest who is sinless, otherwise he cannot approach God on our behalf, certainly could not offer himself as the sacrifice for our sins. But we also need a priest who knows us and whom we can be assured he knows us and knows our trials and our frailty and cares for us with that kind of deep, deep, unbreakable commitment. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.